This morning, we are in our final sermon in our series, Asking for a Friend. And we've been asking, well, you have been asking, we asked you to ask all the hard questions that you could give us. And uh, there were some, definitely some hard questions that came in. Jacob? Yeah, man, keep going. Thanks. Get that connection for me. Thank you, bro. That was low key. Nobody saw him, right? All right. Well, today is uh, it's definitely one of the hardest questions that you guys could have asked. It's definitely something that all of us are dealing with, and that is the question of why should I forgive those that have hurt me? Why should I forgive those that have hurt me? We have all been hurt, and so my prayer for us this morning is that we wouldn't get caught up in the trauma and the offense that someone did against us, but that we would realize that we can set them free, that we realize that we have been set free, that we don't have to live in that cage. We don't have to live in that prison anymore. We can let them go. And so this morning, as we are talking about forgiveness, I think outside of the life of Jesus and in the New Testament and the Gospels, where we see forgiveness over and over and over again, I think this morning we have to go back to the Old Testament. There are so many stories about forgiveness in the Bible, but this story is all forgiveness from start to finish. And it's in a place and it's in a life where I don't necessarily think we would think to look at when it comes to forgiveness. And today that is in the life of Joseph. We see the beginning of the story, the life of Joseph, in Genesis 37. Now, we're going to start in Genesis 37. We're going to end in Genesis 45 today. So, I need somebody to stand up and read eight chapters for me, okay? All right, no. Forgive me for that, all right? That would have been terrible. No, we see Joseph in Genesis 37 being faithful to his father, and his father's name is Jacob. Joseph has a vision of being over his father's house, and his brothers kneel before him. And what does Joseph do? We see that Joseph doesn't have a lot of social intelligence, my man. Let's give it up for our Wi-Fi team this morning. Every Sunday from now on, I'm printing a copy of the message too. (laughs) Goodness gracious. We see that Joseph doesn't have the greatest social awareness. He has this vision from God, and it's over him being over his father's house and all of his brothers kneeling before him. And so what does he do as the youngest brother? Well, you do what the youngest brother does. You go tell all of your big brothers, hey, I had this dream. I'm pretty sure it's from God, and you're going to bow before me one day. And they're all super excited about that. And then Joseph is sold into slavery. Now we look at this and we're like, man, that stinks. It stinks that he was sold into slavery. It stinks that his brothers did that to him. But actually, Joseph being sold into slavery is the upside of this bargain. Because his brothers were furious, and his brothers wanted to kill him. Now, I am an older brother, which means I have a younger brother. And I'm sure there's plenty of times where I've told my younger brother, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) The difference is, two chapters before this, we see that Joseph's brothers just slaughtered an entire village. You know the difference between me and Joseph's brothers? I've not done that. (laughs) And so when they say it, 
they mean it. So when Joseph is sold into slavery, yeah, it stinks. He's sold into slavery, but he keeps his life. That was the upside of things. And then he is sold to a man named Potiphar. And Genesis 38 talks about his brother Judah, some choices he makes. And then back in Genesis 39, Joseph is faithful to Potiphar. He ends up in Potiphar's house. And a lot of times growing up in church, we can kind of look at this and be like, you know what? Man, way to go, Joseph. You stayed true. You stayed faithful. This must be the reward. This must be the payout. But it is not the reward. It is not the payout. You see, he is elevated to being over Potiphar's house. And then Potiphar's wife, she finds Joseph this fine young thing. You know what I'm saying? And she tries to seduce him. What does Joseph do? This man of character. This man of God. He resists. And what does she do? She lies about him. She snitches on him about something he didn't even do. And where does Jacob end up? Or Joseph, where does Joseph end up? Jacob, he's still back at his home chilling. That's his daddy. He ends up in prison. Genesis 40, in prison. He encounters these two men, and he interprets their dream. One is a butcher, one is a baker, another is a candlestick maker. There's no, there's no candlestick maker. There's also no butcher, it's just a baker. <laughs> it's a cupbearer, though. And so the cupbearer needs his dream interpreted. The baker needs his dream interpreted. These were guys in Pharaoh's court. And so they have these dreams, and they're like, man, these are some wackadoodle dreams. And we didn't have pizza before we went to bed last night, so there must be something to these. And so they go to Joseph. They're like, hey, we need some help here. Joseph interprets their dreams. He says, guess what, cupbearer? Good for you. You're going to be restored. Hey, baker, I don't know. Maybe you just weren't very good at baking. Pharaoh's going to kill you. So... What happens? He interprets the dreams. The dreams come true. The cupbearer gets restored. Unfortunately, the baker is put to death. And then in Genesis 41, <laughs> we see in the writing of Scripture, uh, it's Moses that writes Genesis. It's Moses that writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And I'm just thinking as Moses is being inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's writing these down, Genesis 41 starts off with these words. Two whole years later. That cupbearer that Joseph interpreted that dream for, it is two whole years later. I'm just thinking about Moses as he's writing this. Man, that's a long time. This guy told Joseph he was going to remember him. And when does he remember him? He remembers him two whole years later. Pharaoh has a dream that needs interpretation. The cupbearer, he's like, you know what? I think I know a guy. See, I met him in the prison system, and I think he's still there. See, I had a dream, and this other guy had a dream, and he interpreted both of those dreams, and both of them came to fruition. So, you know what, Pharaoh? Let me go check the jailhouse real quick. Let me see if Joseph is in there. Now, let's try to get him up here. So what, what happens? Joseph, he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he ends up in Pharaoh's court. So now we're like, okay, surely this is the reward. Surely this is the payoff for Joseph's faithfulness. But it's not it, because this is not how things are supposed to be. Everything seen in Joseph's life between Joseph and Pharaoh is a twisted, perverted version of what is supposed to be between Joseph and his father, Jacob. We see Joseph is exalted. He's over Pharaoh's house, but He's not supposed to be over Pharaoh's house. He's supposed to be over Jacob's house. He's supposed to be over his father's house. We see that he's over Egypt. He's not supposed to be over Egypt. 
He's not supposed to be in a land where his people would one day be slaves. He's supposed to be over the land of promise. We see that he was clothed in a multicolor robe that his father gave him. And now he is clothed by a man who is not his father. He is clothed by a man named Pharaoh. He told his brothers that they would bow at his feet. they nearly kill him. Pharaoh tells people to bow at Joseph's feet. And what do they do? They obey. They obey every word that Joseph speaks. He's supposed to be married to a Jewish woman. He's supposed to have a Jewish name. Instead, he is married to a pagan woman. And he starts going by a pagan name. Again, given to him by Pharaoh. Is this the big payout? Is this the reward for Jacob's faithfulness? No, not yet. Genesis 42, there's a great famine in the land. Pharaoh dreamed it. Joseph interpreted it. Jacob sends his sons, Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy food. Benjamin, the youngest, he stays behind. Joseph is now the governor over the land of Egypt. His brothers end up before him to buy food. Joseph, he recognizes his brothers, but his brothers do not recognize him. Eventually, he sends them on their way with grain, and he fills their bags with money with which they were to purchase the grain. He says, do not return without Benjamin. Simeon, one of the brothers, stays behind in captivity with Joseph as collateral so that the rest of the brothers can go on to be with the father. And what beautiful picture of Jesus this is. What beautiful picture of the cross that would be to come. As Simeon stays behind, he pays the punishment. He deals with the debt that these brothers have as they get to go on to be with the Father. We see that in Jesus paying the debt for our sin so that we can be forgiven, so that we can go on to be with the Father. And then on the way back, they realize that they still have the money in their bags and there is a panic that sets in. Genesis 43, they run out of food and they return to Egypt. Now the boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. You know what I'm saying? They're back in town. And they also take choice food and the choices of provisions with them. Not only do they take that, but they take double the silver that they took the first time because this time they have to prove, hey, we're not here to cause trouble. Hey, we are not thieves. When they arrive in Egypt, Joseph sees Benjamin and he receives them. They explain the money situation. They don't want to be seen as thieves. And Jacob explains that he received the money, that this was simply God's blessing, God's favor on them. And Simeon is returned to him. They present their gifts to Jacob and they feast together. And this is crazy because Egyptians, Hebrew people, didn't feast together. This is scandalous. And so they are dumbfounded when they get to have a feast with the governor of Egypt. Genesis 44, Joseph puts his brothers to a test. He sets them up as thieves, and then they are ran down, and they are returned to him. The brothers recap everything that has happened since the first time they met, and this is where we land in our scripture this morning. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. If you have your Bibles, it's the very first book. 45 chapters in, verses 1 through 15. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to have it on the screen for those of you that need it there. It says, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. 
So there was no, no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. That's a good cry. That's not a cry where you try to hide it from everybody. That's one of those cries where something is going on inside of you and you can't hold it in. You can't get control of your emotions. There's something going on in Joseph here. And then in verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing, no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded to me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. What do we see here? We see redemption. We see restoration. We see the reward for Joseph's faithfulness. We see the payoff. It is right here. So today, we're talking about forgiveness. And if we're going to talk about forgiveness, we really need to drill down onto what forgiveness actually is. We need to figure out what forgiveness actually means. The biblical definition of forgiveness is a term used to indicate pardon for a fault or offense, to excuse payment for a debt that is owed. What is forgiveness? Let me tell you what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness looks like somebody coming up here to the podium, grabbing my phone that runs my iPad's Wi-Fi that didn't necessarily work earlier, being so upset about that. little awkward period where I just wasn't saying anything up here that they grab my phone and they smash it on the ground. And in that moment, I say, you know what? I forgive you. And of course, what do we mean? Somebody does something like that and we say that we forgive them. Do we really forgive them? No, we're basically saying, you know what? I saw what you did right there. and I'm not going to punch you in the mouth for doing it. That's our definition of forgiveness. But now, now that I'm not going to punch you in the mouth for doing that, now you need to pay for my phone. Now is that forgiveness? That's a half measure of forgiveness. That's certainly opening the door to forgiveness. But if we're pardoning 
offenses, if we're canceling debts, that's not forgiveness. No, forgiveness is someone coming up here, smashing my phone on the ground and me saying, you know what, I forgive you. And I'm still not going to punch you. And you don't need to worry about paying for that. Because I see what you did. I've tallied it up. I know. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let it go. There's an offense that's been taken against me. And I'm offended. But because I forgive you, I am going to let it go. Now, that's more of a financial example. We need to take a look at what forgiveness looks like outside of a financial setting. I think it's easy for us. And it's certainly a little bit easier to bear for us not to look at forgiveness in a relational setting. But the relational setting is where we need to focus today because it's the relational setting that has so many of us trapped. So forgiveness can be unilateral. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness can be unilateral. What does it mean that forgiveness is unilateral? It means that it goes one way. It means that you have wronged me, you have not repented, you have not asked for forgiveness, but I have forgiven you. We see this in Genesis 42 in the life of Joseph. Joseph forgave his brothers and took care of their needs before they even knew it was him to ask for forgiveness. He didn't hold it over their heads. He didn't make them say sorry first. No, he had already forgiven them in his heart. How does he do that? Well, we see that if we go a little bit further, Genesis 4, 5 through 7. He knew that God was in control and he had strong faith in God. It says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you have sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life, your life, Egyptians' lives, and we will see soon life for everybody. Verse 6, For the famine has been in the, year, in the land for these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God has sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And that's exactly what happens. And to keep alive for you many survivors, so that it was not you who sent me, but it was God. Now, we have been talking about this over the course of this series. This seems to be a reoccurring theme in the life of our church as we ask this question, why do good, bad things happen to good people? This is an Old Testament way of saying what Paul writes about in the New Testament. Really, I think Paul, you could say, Paul is writing what you could say in the Old Testament. He does it later. So, Romans eight twenty-eight. We've read this time and time again, especially in this series. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God works together all things for his good and for the good of those who he calls. And he works it according to his purpose. So, let's get personal. For some of us in here, we have been waiting for somebody to ask for forgiveness for years and years and years, and it is absolutely killing you. It is absolutely eating you from the inside. Unforgiveness can be seen as an acid, and it's one of the strongest acids that there are. An acid, in the end, will always eat the container that it is contained in. That's what happens when there's unforgiveness in our life. Because of that, we need to let it go. We need to forgive the wrong. We need 
to let ourselves realize that Jesus has set us free from this prison, that we are holding ourselves captive inside. We need to realize that this was never locked, that the chains around our wrists, the chains around our feet, they've always been open. And through the work of Jesus, through his forgiveness of our sins, and our ability to forgive them of their sins as he has forgiven us, we can walk straight out of those doors. We can allow God to move in our lives. We can move forward. If Joseph never forgives his brothers, he would have physically been removed from the pit that his brothers confined him to as a boy. But what would have happened mentally for Joseph? Mentally, he would have stayed in that pit. Mentally, he would have grown bitter. Mentally, he would not have been in a place emotionally, spiritually, mentally, where he could forgive his brothers for what they did to him. And then what happens? Then God doesn't use him because he's not giving his life over to God to be used for what God has in store, which we'll dive into here in a little bit. So forgiveness is unilateral. Forgiveness is also transactional. That means that it goes both ways. That means that you have wronged me, you have repented, you have asked for forgiveness, and guess what? I have forgiven you. When forgiveness takes place and it's transactional and it's two different parties, forgiveness becomes something different. And that something different is reconciliation. Hear me when I say this. God desires for you to reconcile. God tells you. God commands you to forgive. Reconciliation needs to be strived for. Reconciliation. We need to allow the Spirit to operate within us. We need to stop quenching so that reconciliation can happen in our lives between us and other peoples. But there are times in your life where you are going to extend forgiveness to somebody and it is not going to be reciprocated. Reconciliation will not take place and it will not be of the fault of your party in this transaction. But it will be in the hands of someone else. So, desire reconciliation as God desires reconciliation, but realize that the command that God's telling you to forgive, sometimes, sometimes, it's more important to release that person, even though they never said sorry, so that you can move on with other relationships in your life that you are walling yourself up from. Sometimes, every time, it is ultimately better to be freed yourself and to move forward in your walk, in your relationship with God, having forgiven and having been forgiven. Another thing we need to know about forgiveness this morning is that forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is not a feeling. We may never emotionally be at a place where we feel like letting that person go of their offense. And I'll tell you this, in the flesh, we will never feel like letting that person go of their offense in our own strength, we will never be able to let that person go of their offense. But forgiveness, forgiveness is choosing to let that person go, to let that debt go, despite how you feel. How do you operate outside of your feelings? Well, you realize that there is a power within you that is greater than anything that you could ever put on the table. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit will you truly be able to release that person for what they have done to you. 
Only in the power of the Holy Spirit will you be able to forgive that debt. Let him go. It's not worth it. It's not worth what it's doing to you. Let him go. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. Another thing we need to know about forgiveness is that forgiveness is not forgetting. Joseph does not forget everything that his brothers did to him. If you start to forget things that people have done to you, if you forget the trauma in your life, chances are that's a repressed memory. That's a repressed thought. Or chances are that you got to get checked out. I don't remember a whole lot of stuff, but I'll never forget who's hurt me. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Joseph, he remembers what his brothers did. And what does he do? He welcomes them into his land. He welcomes them into his home. He remembers what his brothers did, and he provides for their needs. He remembers what his brothers did, and he sits and he eats with them. He remembers what his brothers did, and still he preserves their lives. Did they deserve that? Absolutely not. They didn't get what they deserved. He remembers what his brothers did, and still he blesses them. And not only does he bless them, these guys wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. They kept him captive in a pit. It says that he blesses them, and he wants them near. Why? Because Joseph forgave. And once again, what a beautiful picture of the cross. We have the same thing in Jesus. He knew all of our sin before he sinned it. I was talking to my daughter about that this week. I said, Brooklyn, are you a sinner? She's like, yeah, I think I'm a sinner. What have you done? I've told some lies. <laughs> yeah, is that it? No. Well, what else have you done? I don't know. I've been mad at my sister. It's like, yeah, you know what Jesus says about being mad? That's murdering in your heart. You're like the youngest murderer ever. <laughs> Daddy. I said, you know the Bible says honor your father and mother? Oh, yeah, I got that. Oh, yeah? <laughs> no. Jesus knew all of our sin before we sinned it. I shared that with her, and she's like, man, that's too good to be true. She's only six years old. She's got a whole catalog of sin. She's like one of the best kids I've ever known. She's way better than me at six. I was getting kicked out of first, second grade, you know? I had six daycares I wasn't allowed back into. It was rough. Blew her mind. Jesus knew every sin. Not just that she'd sin in her short little six, almost seven-year life, but every sin that she would go on to sin. And you know what was even cooler? is when she realized that he still chose to give his life for her that he loves her enough that he would do that. And that's not just my B-girl. That's you too. That's me too. He still took the cross for us. It's like Joseph for his brothers. He still makes a way for us. He still wants us to be near to him. We see this when Jesus eats with sinners, when he eats with tax collectors, when he eats with prostitutes, when he eats with the dirtiest, the messiest, the brokenest of people. He not only preserves our lives, but he gives us life. He not only provides for our needs, but he blesses us abundantly according to his will. And then he goes and he prepares a way for us. 
just as Joseph goes into Egypt and prepares a way for his people. We don't have to forget, but we do have to forgive. And again, let me put a disclaimer on this. This doesn't mean that we throw wisdom and discernment out the window. This doesn't mean that we fully trust that we fully trust an abuser in our past. This doesn't mean that we trust our kids around people who have hurt us previously. No, in the Holy Spirit, we still have wisdom, we still have discernment, and we still operate within that. But forgiving them means you don't make them pay. So, what does it look like when we make people pay? Unforgiveness looks like deprivation. When we make people pay relationally in our lives, when we say, I forgive you, but in our lives, we make people pay. Let's look at our friendships. Let's look at our marriages. We say, I forgive you. I just don't want to be around you anymore. You make them pay. I forgive you, but I'm just going to withhold my affection from you right now. Married couples, where are you at? This is something we deal with. We retreat from each other. When unforgiveness is in the midst of our union, between each other and God. We say, I forgive you. I'm just going to build up this wall against you right now. I forgive you. I'm just never going to open up to you again. I forgive you. I just resent you. And I'm going to make you pay. That is not forgiveness. A lack of forgiveness in marriages always leads to one thing. And it's a slow fade. It goes from husband and wife together to roommate, to separated, to divorce. And I want you to know, when husband and wife come together, you're a three-strand cord. It is not just the two of you, but you walk into the covenant that is marriage with God Almighty. That's a union that's not supposed to be broken. And that's a union that when it is broken, hurts. And there needs to be forgiveness present. What about unforgiveness with our parents? I forgive you. I'm just no longer going to honor you. I'm just no longer going to respect you because I don't think you deserve it. I forgive you. I'm just not going to share pictures of the kids with you anymore. I'm just going to unfriend you on Facebook so you can't get a life update on what's going on in our family. I forgive you, but you are mean to me. And so I'm not going to send you that birthday card. I forgive you, but I just don't want you to be a part of our lives. So you're just not going to get invited to this. I'm going to forget to invite you to that. I'm going to make sure we're always busy when you invite us to this. You make them pay. It's not forgiveness. And how about with our kids? We deprive them of an inheritance. Maybe this is you. Maybe some of you retirees you're at a place where your kids are grown and you've got some wealth, you've got some better life stacked up for them somewhere and you know that it could bless them one day but they hurt you and you've forgiven them at least in the present but in the future you're going to make them pay. That's not forgiving. That's making them pay. Maybe it's depriving them of your joy and your admiration. Once again, making them pay 
Maybe it's remaining stern or harsh with your kids far longer than that offense actually takes for you to be a good parent and for there to be consequences. You make them pay. So why should we forgive someone that has hurt us? Three things this morning. If we do not forgive the person that has hurt us, the first thing is we are being disobedient. And this is super ironic because if you think about it, someone sinned against you and now in your unforgiveness, you are now sinning because they sinned against you. A lack of forgiveness is disobedience to God. Number two, you're telling God one of two things. If they're a believer, you are telling God that Jesus' death wasn't enough for me. I know that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to forgive all sin, but that wasn't enough for me. And so I want them to be punished even more. I want Jesus to go back up on that cross because what he did wasn't enough the first time. And so we continue to put Jesus on the cross over and over and over again because we have not forgiven the people in our lives that we need to let go. What about the person that doesn't believe in God? Well, now we're telling God that hell isn't enough for them. That God's wrath against sin isn't enough for them. Now, now, not only do we think they need to go to hell, but now they need to go to hell and be punished by us for the rest of their life. That's really going to get the point across. And we see Romans twelve nineteen, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Some of us have been trying to make people pay for the sin that they sinned against us for years and years and years, and we've got to let it go, and we've got to let God punish them. I want to tell you right now, you may think you're pretty good at punishing people. You may think you're pretty good at giving them the cold shoulder, but you're not God. You don't know the full picture. And we have no idea what justice looks like when it's compared to God who sees everything and knows exactly what they're going through, knows exactly what they need, ultimately. The third thing is when we don't forgive, we pay for it. There's a quote I'm sure many of you have heard. It says, depriving others of forgiveness is like you drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. That's what we do time and time again if we do not let that debt go. So why should I Forgive someone that hurt me, because with forgiveness comes redemption. And this is a beautiful story that we see in the life of Joseph and in his faithfulness. And remember, this is the big payout. What happens if Joseph never forgives? Well, internally, we know that Joseph would have become grumpy, salty, miserable to be around. If he never lets God's forgiveness sink into his heart, he never forgives others. And then God doesn't use him. Externally, we see that God's plan to preserve life doesn't come to fruition if Joseph never forgives. And I'm not just talking about Egypt. I'm not just talking about for the Jewish people. I'm talking about if, the, if Joseph never forgives, it stops the family line of God's plan of redemption for the entire world. Let's trace it down. If Joseph never forgives his brothers, he never forgives Judah. If Joseph never forgives Judah, Judah gets what he deserves. If Judah gets what he deserves, Judah dies. Okay, well, who's Judah? If Judah dies, down the line, King David is never born. 
if King David is never born, then down the line, King Jesus is never born. If King Jesus is never born, then we have no hope against sin. We have no hope for God's forgiveness. If King Jesus is never born, then we have no hope in our lives to be born again. We have no hope in our lives of repentance, of following Jesus. So as followers of Jesus, we do not stop redemption. We champion redemption. And we champion redemption because we keep on forgiving. Time and time again, Matthew 18, 21 through 22, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many times as seven? Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 77 times. According to Jesus, this means we don't just give first chances. We give second chances. We give third chances. We give 77 chances. We give so many chances that we keep giving chances until redemption comes to fruition. That's who we are as Christians. Ultimately, why do we forgive someone that has hurt us? We forgive someone who has hurt us because you have been forgiven. Matthew six fourteen. For I forgive others their trespassers their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. For if I forgive you, if I forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So if you want to receive forgiveness, this means that you have to give forgiveness. And finally, this morning, our rally cry, my rally cry across every marriage, across every friendship, across every family relationship, across every dating relationship, across every parent-child relationship in this room is this verse right here. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Think about the relationships in your life. Think about the people who you are making pay. Think about the people who you have forgiven. We need to let them go because God in Christ has let us go. It's not worth holding on to. And this is the story of the gospel. I think time and time again we can say, but that's not fair. What I want to point to this morning is that forgiveness isn't fair. I know it doesn't feel fair to let that person go of what they did to you. But I want us to look at the cross. I want us to look at Jesus. And I want us to look at the fairness that is not present at the cross. You see, there was one who was righteous. There was one who was perfect. There was only one who was ever good. And that person took the cross for you, for me, for the things that we need to be forgiven of. And so if we're taking fairness into consideration, let's realize that there's no fairness on the table whatsoever. Fairness went out the window when a spotless lamb was sacrificed for our sin, when the perfect sacrifice took place so that we could be forgiven. So this morning, I want to invite Jeremy up on stage. I want to ask him to play some music for us. But I want us to reflect on some things in our life And then I want us to go straight into communion today. I know it's not how we normally do things. But this morning, as Jeremy's playing some music, I want us to reflect 
on the forgiveness that we have received in the cross. Jesus' death for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And because we have been forgiven much, now we love much. Now we forgive much. I want us to reflect on who we need to forgive. And I also want us to reflect on who we need to ask for forgiveness. So let's take a little bit of time. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's process together. And then we'll take this before the Lord in communion as we remember the cross.